I'm Bob Dickey, and welcome to another episode of Taking the Lead Podcast. My guest today is my good friend, Oren Zaslansky. Oren is a classmate of mine, and we have had a lot of fun together over the years in Boston. Oren is loved and respected by all of our classmates, and he is a true blue flame thinker. He's wicked smart to steal a line out of goodwill hunting and is doing amazing work. He's a graduate of Harvard Business School and is the founder and CEO of Flock Freight, which is bringing software to the freight industry. In short, they help shippers have more options and better prices while helping freight carriers optimize routes with fuller loads, which increases their profitability. He does all of this while reducing carbon emissions for the planet, so that's amazing. I loved his insights on the industry, technological changes that are coming down the pike, and even how we can improve our communication and the politics in our country by taking time to listen and understand other people. I love this conversation, and I think you'll enjoy it as well. So let's jump right in. Oren, I've been waiting to have you on the podcast for quite some time. I'm so excited that you were able to find some time in your busy schedule to, to join us today. Well, of course, I'm super stoked to be here. Super stoked to reconnect with you. It's been it's been too long. Of course, if it's been a month, it's been too long for me to see you. It has been a hot minute, and you uh, <laughs> you flew in from your home base for you is San Diego, right? And you're in the the your Chicago offices. Is that right? Yeah, Flox uh, HQ one, as we think of it, is is San Diego, specifically Encinitas, and then HQ two in Chicago. And that's something that's really important to us. We want to make sure that the team in Chicago doesn't feel like a satellite, but rather, you know, that that they're an essential part of what we do. So I'm back and forth probably every other week, as well as a lot of other uh, folks on the exec team. And uh, it's just a great town, great team. That's awesome. What part of Chicago? I'm up there every now and then, and I absolutely love what is the Miracle Mile and the my favorite place to stay is the Palmer House, the old historic Palmer Hilton. I don't know if you've been there, but if you haven't, the uh, the interior of that place is unbelievable. It reminds you of like the old, you know, 1920s, 1930s, you know, old historic Chicago. Uh, I haven't been to that one. You know, we're in uh, Fulton Market, which has become kind of the, the burgeoning sort of tech center. So our, our office is literally across the street from Google here. Okay. We're uh, a block or two over from from TikTok. Uh, it's really, you know, McDonald's that kind of, I think, uh, revitalized Fulton Market. They moved, you know, a 750,000 square foot facility from the suburbs into Fulton Market um, a few years back. And I affectionately call Fulton Market like the world's best food court. I mean, the, the, the food around here is just unbelievable, as is Chicago in general. And so given how often I go back and forth, I admit I tend to stay at the same hotel that's a block away and I can just kind of in and out and, and walk back and forth pretty quickly. Oh, that's great. So um, that's probably a, a pretty good a jumping off location in terms of what you're doing currently. I've, you know, I want our listeners to be able to have a, a better understanding of, I mean, you're in, it's like a merging of two different worlds. It's like, kind of like you're an old, uh, old school logistics business. And then it like collides with technology, which is very interesting. It seems like, you know, the old Andreessen uh, quote was, you know, software is eating the world, right? Um, so tell me a little bit about your business flock freight and, you know, what, what would your elevator pitch be for someone who doesn't know anything about your business or anything about your industry? What do you, what are you up to? You know, 
I've, I've pitched this business to customers and to investors, uh, you know, probably a thousand plus times at this point, and I think I'm still refining it. Mm-hmm. Uh, to your point, uh, we are building uh, an enormous tech stack and an incredible cutting edge technology business at the same time, uh, building a, a best in class, um, you know, freight block is we do um, algorithmic shared truckloads or, or um, ride sharing of mm-hmm. commercial freight. So the easiest way to explain it is a use case. Um, in the the full truckload industry in the U.S. is massive. It's about a half a trillion dollars a year, five hundred billion dollars a year in the U.S. alone. Um, every other one of those trucks, half those trucks are only half full. Uh, it's a disaster, right? That's a financial disaster. People are paying for uh, space they aren't using. So and when you see a semi trailer going down the, the the freeway, it's possible it's half half empty. Yeah, it's it's fifty percent like that it's only half full. Okay. Um, and, you know, and so from an environmental standpoint, that's super wasteful as well. We're burning the same amount of diesel either way. Mm-hmm. So Flock's addressing that from both ends of the marketplace. There's the, the manufacturer, the shipper, who is our customer. We go to them and simply say, don't pay for old truck, pay for what you need. Uh, nobody's ever been able to do that before, and we'll put your freight with a bunch of other customers' freight and fill up a truckload or create a ride share or shared truckload. To the carrier, the trucking company, we do something similar. We go to them and say, you're running around half empty, super wasteful. Uh, why don't you go ahead and, and uh, give us a little bit of data, uh, integrate with us modestly, and we'll be able to put more freight on board that, that half empty trailer. And in doing so, uh, you know, help you be more profitable by, by having more revenue on board. The way in which we do it is what's so unique about us. And we call it either terminal free or hub list means the same thing. It's kind of to the layperson. Uh, unfortunately, there's two ways in which you move kind of a half a truckload of freight in this country. You'd either buy an entire truck, which is what we were just describing, uh, or you would send it across a very dense, very expensive hub and spoke, meaning you know, from LA to Chicago, you would use seven drivers, seven terminals, seven trucks as your freight kind of played hopscotch or frogger, as the case may be uh, across the country. We're able to to make it hub lists. We're able to say, let's just get loaded on one of those big trucks you see on the highway. That's half empty. Mm-hmm. Let's get that truck full. And in the end, the customer gets much higher quality. They only pay for the amount of space that they need. And the truckers get fuller, which means more profitable. And I would imagine that the less... Um frequently that you are touching that and moving it from truck to truck. And it, it, there's, there's, that's where all the damage occurs, right? Like as you're moving that product around and in, in transit, that's like, I, I know in, uh, um, you know, when you're moving a household, you, you want to put that stuff on a truck and you don't want that coming off. And uh, that, that's where stuff's going to get broken and destroyed so that this actually protects the goods that's in transit as well. Correct. Yeah, you're absolutely right. There's kind of the, the six or seven key KPIs or, or, or uh, uh, markers of quality mm-hmm. in the freight industry are going to be on-time pickup, on-time delivery, damage, which you were describing, what we call transit time, which just means how long it's going to take to get something there. And over the last two and a half, three years, boy, has that been a problem for all of us as consumers. Um, and then uh, loss and theft, you know, believe it or not, things go missing, unfortunately. So to your point, uh, when, when your freight is moving in and out of terminals over and over and over again, and all that handling is what creates damage. The actual uh, transportation sitting on a truck going down the road, the tech is actually pretty good now. That That's not where damage is occurring. But if you're loading and unloading it through seven terminals between LA and Chicago, between you know Miami and Seattle, you know what with Dallas to New Jersey, whatever the lane is, um, excuse me, you're going to have a lot of damage there. 
from a from an on-time pickup and delivery standpoint, you have a similar problem. Uh, the the hub and spoke we call it LTL or less than truckload industry only picks up about seventy percent on time, and unfortunately only delivers about forty percent on time. The the full truckload industry, the big trucks you see on the highway, they pick up and deliver like ninety six, ninety seven percent on time all, all the time. So. That's the name of the game, is to be able to improve quality, take damage to basically zero, get customers their goods in half the time, give you much more precision. It picks up and delivers on time. We can do all that in the the full truckload industry, the big trucks. Mm -hmm. What we do is an algorithmic conversion. We use software to fundamentally transform those small shipments into ride-shared big shipments. And in doing so, we're able to make sure the customers get everything they need and make sure that the trucking companies can be more profitable. So you found a problem, put yourself in the middle of it, uh, solving it both for the shipper and the customer um, or the, the logistics um, you know, the terminals. And um, so it, it really is an equation where it's one plus one equals three. I mean, you're, it's everybody wins here yeah. when they're u- utilizing your software. And you're, you're taking a business that's been around, you know, for centuries and putting technology on top of it to make it run better, to be more efficient. Uh, it's all, so there's right now, it's just interesting in the news just this week. I mean, there's all sorts of stories about and you're getting reports out of the East Coast. It's like oh, diesel uh, fuel shortages. We're at historic lows here in the U.S. I mean. This transportation network, the the entire U.S. economy runs on it. So I'd love to just um, get your inside um, inside baseball, if you will, on what's happening with logistics and transportation. You know, any insights that you may have on this because this is very critical uh, for the economy. Uh, you know, as diesel prices are rising, it's going to you know have inflation for American families. So what, what are you seeing? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'll, I'll circle back just for one second to what you said about, you know, um, increasing quality for, for the customer, reducing cost, but also on the supply side, the carriers, the, the truckers, helping them make more money. You know, if you recall, you know, at, at HBS, we heard Francis Fry talk about the three wedges. And the three wedges were customer delight, supplier surplus, and profits for the firm. Mm-hmm. And if you could pull all three of those things off, you'd have something really, really special. Mm-hmm. And that's something I'm really proud of that we're addressing at Flock. The customer delight is simply giving them much higher quality. No damage, getting their goods to market faster, uh, getting more predictability and on-time pickup and delivery. Hopefully that, that's obvious to your listeners. But the supplier surplus side is really hard to do. And, and maybe in the end where we're creating the most value. And supplier surplus is canonically the, the Airbnb model. You know, it's a business I, I really admire as as they've learned to tap into. You know, I own a condo. I'm in Chicago today. Um, and, you know, I'm traveling. I'm not going to be here. It's sitting there empty. You know, why not put it on Airbnb and allow somebody else to rent it out? Uh, that person is going to get uh, hopefully a high quality product uh, and they're going to pay less than they mm-hmm. pay for a hotel because to me, it's just my apartment that's sitting empty, unused. On my side, that what Airbnb would call the host side, I'm thrilled to put some revenue dollars into an asset that's otherwise just sitting there underutilized. That supplier surplus model is phenomenal. Traditionally, our industry, the freight industry, and many industries don't operate that way. What they really do is they, they they pound each other in the face, quite frankly, over that one last penny. It's mm-hmm. like as if there's one penny on the table and everybody's getting a fork and knife out and they're slicing up that penny. And it's a literal penny. It's 1% of the transaction. Wow. Uh, what we're doing at Flock instead is saying, hey, your trailer's half empty. That's, that's excess inventory. You have supplier surplus. Mm-hmm. It's very hard what we do because that inventory is moving. Mm-hmm. So 
unlike Airbnb, we know it's sitting in Chicago. It's it's, it's located here or there. Um, I know what the cost basis of it is. I know everything about it. In our case, we don't. We're working with partners with outside carriers or, or trucking companies, and it's moving. So it's like imagine trying to book that Chicago Airbnb, but today it's in Chicago, and tomorrow it's in St. Louis, and the next day it's in Chattanooga, and so on. And we're 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 digitally filling up that space. Um, so in real time. That, in real time. So pulling off that 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 customer delight, and at the same time, supplier surplus, putting more freight on board that truck allows the the trucking company to to create more revenue, to make more money by unlocking that. And then the last piece is profits for the firm. We're we're able to unlock, and it's it's a bit technical to our industry, but an industry arbitrage between mm-hmm. the, the the LTL high price and low quality and the truckload much lower price and high quality. So the the importance of you know we're we're the only certified B Corp in freight, which which for those your listeners that aren't familiar, um, you know, a commitment, a a demonstrated, measured um, value creation on the sustainability side. Effectively, by filling up half-empty trucks, we're reducing carbon by 40 to 50 percent. B Corp is the premier Mm -hmm. agency that would accredit you. This is not a a banner you pay for and you put on your website. This is, you know, something very difficult to achieve. It's it's the likes of Patagonia and Tom's, you know, this is a really kind of a special group. and in in um, for a logistics company to be able to get that certification, yeah. that is freaking amazing, dude. Yeah, thank you. It, it was, you know, in fact, a, a quick anecdote. When we approached them, they said no. I mean, they literally said, you're the bad guy. You're the logistics guys. You're the truckers. And my response was, you know, respectfully, you enjoy eating and uh, food came, comes on trucks. So, mm-hmm. you know, let, let's not do that. But rather, let's agree it's an inefficient, suboptimal industry, but we've got a better mousetrap. We've mm-hmm. got a different way of getting goods moved. And in doing so, uh, we're reducing carbon. And, and to their credit, we went back and forth. They, they made us prove it as they should. Uh, we were able to do so. And and in the end, uh, we're able to, uh, you know, achieve B Corp certification. So, you know, being able to, to reduce waste, I, I think of sustainability, not only environmentally, I think mm-hmm. that word is 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 very much associated with environmental, uh, but I also think of it as financial sustainability. Mm. You know, we we have to make money. You know, we, we, we don't live on, you know, donations. We live on customers paying us to provide mm-hmm. a service. Um, and so, you know, to the degree that we're profitable, we can continue to scale. And the bigger we get, the more trucks we fill, the more carbon we reduce. And we create that virtuous cycle of kind of capital S sustainability, financial st- sustainability, as well as as well as environmental. So super, super proud about that, I think. And then the, the last thing I'll say about that that connects more directly into the back half of your question was, um, you know, when when half of all the big trucks on the highway are only half full, effectively, you have more trucks out there than than you might need at any given time because you're not efficiently using all the trucks that are out there. So mm-hmm. when we take a look at the past two and a half years of, of the pandemic environment and the, you know, the the canonical, I can't get, you know, toilet paper, I, mm-hmm. I can't get, you know, bread and milk and eggs, kind of the basics in the grocery store shelves. Um, there were all sorts of things driving that, but not the least of which was we weren't using the fleet we had very efficiently. Mm-hmm. You know, there's millions of trucks in the United States. It's kind of table stakes that the least we should do is make sure every truck is full right. to the degree that every truck is full and, and we still can't get the goods we need. You know, that's a real problem. And then we start debating whether or not we want to bring additional supply into the industry, meaning should we be acquiring more trucks and trailers and drivers and bringing them into the industry to meet those those demand needs? Um, over the last two and a half years, 
you know, if you recall going all the way back to Q2 in 2020, everything just shut down. Mm -hmm. It was a very messy, chaotic for those of us that worked in services. You know, we went home, we brought our laptop, we turned on our cell phones and and we attempted to work in a, in a new way. Uh, for those people that work in manufacturing, which is still a huge uh, number of Americans, you know, it was quite different. You know, in many cases, they had to go home too. Uh, you know, in March, April, and even May of 2020, mm -hmm. and that effectively shut down manufacturing. And this is where we saw the supply chain was a little less robust, mm -hmm. you know, than we'd like it to be, where where the supply chain, I don't think it broke, but I would argue it bent. Yeah, um, and, and so many of, yeah, a lot. Uh, you know, many of us now are thinking about supply chain resiliency in addition to sustainability. Mm -hmm. There's always a next time. I'm, I'm not here to predict what, what drives next time, but there's always a next time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, let's make sure that this thing is a little bit more malleable, a little more flexible so it, it doesn't get bent and it's more resilient. Um, we've largely seen this massive bullwhipping going on where uh, production turns on, it turns off, it turns on, it turns off. If you imagine all these trucks out there kind of matriculating to where the demand is, where the mm -hmm. need is for them, when that turned off, they, they would be sitting there without a, a, a need for them. So they'd mm -hmm. have to kind of go someplace else only to find out that that the they're now imbalanced, uh, dramatically exacerbated by the ports. Mm -hmm. you know, as I think many of your listeners are probably familiar, um, you know, the port of Long Beach and San Pedro, you know, maybe two hours from our office in San Diego, at one point up to 100 vessels um, waiting to get unloaded. It's hard to imagine that if you haven't literally seen it with your own eyes. I, I, I have, um, if you're not familiar with how this works, but that is, a, that is more cargo than you can kind of really imagine. It's way more than 100 trucks, right? It's the equivalent right. of thousands upon thousands upon thousands of trucks effectively floating and sitting out there in the water waiting for their turn in line to get unloaded. Mm -hmm. um, thousands upon thousands of trucks. And then each, inside each truck is thousands upon thousands of boxes of mm -hmm. cell phones or toilet paper or you know, whatever the case may be. It's yeah. a tremendous amount of cargo. That, for the most part, um, has normalized. There are still sort of fits and spurts that go on with a closure in China, which is the, the origin for most of those ships coming to the West Coast, largely getting better. Um, we've seen uh, a bright spot actually in the economy. It makes makes people like me our our jobs a little challenging, but we've seen actually tremendous deflation mm -hmm. in the cost of transportation. So in a in a in a world where we're seeing lots of inflation, we're certainly seeing fuel, as we all know, at the pump and and diesel inflating. We're seeing interest rates inflating. Um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of pain. Uh, fortunately, the cost of transportation has come down tremendously, uh, which which is a good thing. It's kind of keeping the, the wheels of the economy going. Largely stabilized, but I would tell you it feels, as a, as a, a freight professional, it feels kind of like we're skating around on thin ice. You know, there's a lot of angst, a lot of tension as to, you know, what's next. Some of this is driven by, you know, Russia, Ukraine and its impact on, on fuel and the geopolitical scene. A lot of it is rising interest rates. You know, um, you know, transportation is seven trillion globally, one trillion in the U.S. I think the way to think about it is we're simply a fraction of U.S. GDP. We are very much GDP um, rolling mm -hmm. on the on the streets and highways of, of North America. So as we in all likelihood recede, if not already, then GDP contracts, the industry starts to contract. Um, we saw tremendous excess supply, meaning more trucks came into the industry in 20 and 21 because there was so much freight that wasn't getting moved, so much pain. It, it, it was a good time to be a, a truck driver and come into the industry and make a lot of money. Uh, rates really inflated. They went up. I'm one of the few people you'll hear 
uh, who works in the middle, meaning I'm not the actual trucking company, nor am I the manufacturer. I, we, we build tech in the middle, who was kind of happy to see that inflation for the truck drivers. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my first business when I was 21 years old is I started a full truckload carrier, a trucking company. The 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 men and women who, who drive trucks in this country are really near and dear to my heart. I, I don't think you're going to find a, a persona that works harder mm-hmm. and makes less um, under more difficult circumstances. Mm-hmm. You know, going out for six to eight weeks at a time, it's, it's just absolutely brutal. Uh, that's flipped over now, which means the rates have fallen. They're very, very low. They can't make a living wage. They go out of business. So we see that that additional supply that came in the industry to help move goods has now kind of fallen back out. That does kind of normalize supply and demand. I think the good news is things are relatively stable-ish right now. We're going into holiday. You know, hopefully there isn't another shoe that drops mm-hmm. of, you know, some scary COVID wave or weirdness, you know, on the global scene. Um, but I think for most of us, we feel like we push through Q4, we get through Q1 with some ambiguity. And by Q2 of 23, six months from now, mm-hmm. things look back to normal, whatever, you know, whatever normal means. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly it. And so much to unpack there. Um, but I think for many of you know, our listeners, as they hear you kind of give your insight into your industry, specifically your business, uh, and you you highlighted, you know, Uber early on or, you know, Airbnb, and I think they can kind of connect the dots, be like, I can see how what Oren is doing is similar to that, but my goodness, it's like, like the, it, infinitely more complex, right? And, you know, so as I, you know, I've been friends with you now for a number of years, you know, with classmates. And as I've watched you kind of uh, navigate this industry, build your company, and thinking of all the things that you've gone through, right, all the various pivots, all of the various obstacles, uh, I'd love to get a better understanding uh, and, and hearing from you how you have overcome that. Because this has not been like a straight line up and to the right. You know, it's like, oh, you know what? Guess what? I've got, I want to talk a little bit about SoftBank and Masayoshi Sun. And, you know, maybe you, you've got like incredible investors behind you, uh, Google Ventures, right? So when you have these types of blue chip, blue flame thinkers um, backing you, uh, I mean, they're they're going after you know not singles and doubles. They're going after not even home runs. They're going after grand slam, huge ideas. Um, so there's lots of pressure, right? You're you're tackling an a, a extremely difficult problem. Um, how, how do you handle it? How do you how do you keep peace of mind in the midst of all this? How do you when you are faced with an obstacle, a difficulty? How do you pivot? I mean, w- w- give me your insights. How'd... You know. <laughs> Uh, I was in a classroom a week ago um, at University of California, San Diego, UCSD. Okay. Uh, there's, there's a professor down there, Professor Jody Jacobs, uh, retired Naval Admiral, retired CEO of the Girl Scouts of America, now professor in, in this uh, current stage. She teaches a class about social entrepreneurship. It's, you know, she likes to say doing well by doing good. Mm-hmm. And her and I like to like to collaborate with one another. And, and I think we're on of the same mind that we can build very valuable enterprises and at the same time do our part to save the world. That those things can coexist. That, that you know, quite frankly, hardworking, talented folks, particularly in the United States, uh, don't need to choose between just making money or just, you know, doing well by the planet or well by our community. Mm-hmm. Why not invest ourselves in, in both outcomes? And so I love going into that classroom and it's an undergraduate uh, course. So it's, you know, 20 year olds, give or take. Um, and 
you know, they, they asked me a similar question, not so much about how I handle it, but what's it like? And, you know, they meet me today and they think, oh, you know, this person seems successful and they have it all together. And, and uh, it's, it, you know, I don't think they think it's easy, but I think they feel like, um, to your point, it's up and to the right. You know, every day is at least a little bit better than the previous day, hopefully a lot better. And I, I think one of the most important things I do in that class is to disrupt or dispel that perception because mm-hmm. it couldn't be more um, incorrect, as, as you know. Um, I, I tell them, you have to chew glass. Um, and better that you expect that you're going to have to chew glass when you go into it. Mm -hmm. Um, you'll have days that are less awful. You'll have days that are, uh, you feel like you're flying. Mm -hmm. I mean, flying where, where the whole, one of my investors from the the person who led the round from GV, a guy named Joe Kraus, who's just a phenomenal mentor of mine, talked about his favorite part of like the story, the favorite part, his favorite part of the startup is when it starts to get lift, when it starts to take flight. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I live in San Diego, right? So I think about surfing. If anybody's had a chance to surf, you know, when that when that board kind of gets picked up by the wave, yeah. you know, and it just it feels like you're you're taking off. It feels like flying. So um, you know, but but you get a few yeah. of those days, which you get a lot of are days where you chew glass and you, and you work your ass off. So, mm-hmm. you know, how do I deal with it? Uh, first and foremost, I know I got to chew glass mm-hmm. and I can't tell you how helpful it is um, just knowing that because mm-hmm. then in days where I am chewing glass, I'm not saying there's something wrong with me. Mm-hmm. I'm not fighting it. I'm not looking for comfort. I think that's a really oh, dangerous mindset mm-hmm. to say, you know, I didn't expect this to be so hard. It's really hard. If it's hard, I must be doing it wrong. And therefore, I'm not the right person to do this. So I should quit and move on to something else. Right. That's that's just like not an option. Instead, I think about it and say, well, you know, I wanted to change the world. Did I expect it would be easy? <laughs> no, of course yeah. not. It was going to be hard. I'll admit it's been harder than I thought, and mm-hmm. I expected this would be super, super hard. The, the technical requirements of what we're building are harder than I thought. The business requirements are harder than I thought. Uh, the change behavior required mm-hmm. uh, of me, of, of our team, of our customers, of our, our partners, all that's been much harder than I thought. But I knew it would be really, really hard, and, and believe it or not, I hope this is resonant for, for mm-hmm. some of your audience. There's comfort in knowing that that's okay. Mm-hmm. This is going to be really hard. It doesn't mean I'm untalented. It certainly doesn't mean I'm not willing to work hard. It doesn't mean I'm not willing to suffer. It just means it's hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I try to flip that over. Uh, you know, a lot of times I stand up in front of the team and I'm hopefully saying inspirational things, but, but you know, if they hear this, they'll figure out my little trick. What I'm really doing, I think, is self-soothing. You know, I think what I'm really doing and telling them, embrace it, mm-hmm. lean in. Give, give the pain a hug. Mm-hmm. Stop fighting it and stop trying to, you know, anesthetize yourself or look for an easier path. Understand that if it's worth doing, it's hard. I absolutely still get get chills um, from the, you know, the very famous JFK speech where he talks about, you know, we choose to do this thing and the other, not because it's easy, but because it's hard. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when he's talking about the, oh, right behind you, JFK, perfect. You know, when, he, when he's talking about, you know, the race to the moon, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we choose to do this because it's hard and because it's hard, it's worth doing. And uh, therefore, it's definitionally super hard. Having that mindset um, is, is a huge uh, part of kind of how I get through this stuff. And then, of course, family and friends. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know I can, and I have, pick up the phone and call you and lean on you and say, hey, man, I'm struggling. I'm having a bad day. And having a great friend and, and, and having great partners and, and people who, are, who 
understand your rhythm and flow. I think this is really important to who understand when to approach me in what way, mm-hmm. meaning there's times where I need somebody to go, you know what, quit your crying, get back after it. Mm-hmm. You're not done yet. More mm-hmm. work to do. Sometimes that's exactly what I need to hear. Sometimes what I need to hear is, yeah, man, I'm sorry. It's really hard. You know, you're going to get through this, um, but come here and give me a hug. You know, um, you know, it, it, it's a bit of a balance thing. And so I, I can't stress enough having close confidants around you, people whom are rooting for you, people who don't want anything from you other than to, to see you. It's not even succeed in, in the way that I process it. It's seeing uh, you pursue the best version of yourself. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the way that I think about it. Um, you know, you and I have had a lot of, a lot of hard talks together and a lot of moments where we've had an opportunity to, to support one another. And, and if you're fortunate as, as I believe I am to have forged that kind of relationship where just knowing that you're out there, mm-hmm. um, can actually be a, a big point of comfort. But the one thing that I can't stress enough is don't expect hard things to be easy. Mm. Uh, I think that's a, that's a toxic mindset. So yeah, SoftBank has enormous expectations. You know, they're going through a really tough time right now, as, mm. as people know, um, you know, and, and it's going to be hard over there for a while that creates uncertainty and ambiguity for us as a portfolio company. Um, you know, and that's okay. I don't, you know, they're, they're, they've got a business to run. We've got a business to run. Um, I've never really been one to think about um, expecting somebody else to, to come in and, mm-hmm. and save us or expecting somebody else to come in and do it for us. I've always sort of figured, hey, we've got a chance. We've got a shot at this. That's mm-hmm. all we can ask for. They've been very helpful. Uh, there's others that have been incredibly helpful. There are others in the future that I haven't met yet mm-hmm. that are also going to be incredibly helpful um, in supporting us. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, I think calibrating your expectation toward, you know, you want to do something important. It's going to be challenging. And then maybe the last thing I'll say on this, having lived it, you know, we, we read these cases at HBS and outside looking in, they, they seemed light, you know, they seemed effortless. You you know, 15 pages to qualitatively read through the, the beginning of Facebook or mm-hmm. something, you know, right. and you're like, oh, that didn't seem too bad. <laughs> it didn't seem too hard. <laughs> you know, living on this side of it now and realizing, yeah, no, it was excruciating for everyone. I think it's akin to middle school. Right. You know, in middle school, I felt awkward. I felt weird. I felt lonely. I felt estranged. And and the problem is I thought I was the only one that felt that way. Oh, and then you become an adult and you share with others only to find out everybody felt that way. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, we were not yet equipped at age 13 to communicate with one another and support one another. Um, I now, you know, as an adult, understand that phenomenon much better and realize that when I'm looking outside in at somebody else and it seems effortless, it seems light, mm-hmm. it probably isn't. I don't think they're misleading anybody. I, I just think that, you know, it's hard. I know people look at us and they think, wow, things are going really great. You've experienced a lot of growth. You've had some success. And my answer would be, yeah, we have. And been chewing glass mm-hmm. in this business every day to get there. Yeah, I, I use that term quite frequently. I probably picked it up from you. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll share with our listeners when I was one of my favorite experiences, uh, you and I graduated together. So you and I, uh, we were so fortunate to be part of the graduating class that graduated in January of 2020 before all the COVID craziness hit. Um, and But dur- during the program, there was a year where I was blessed to be in your group. You were the group leader. And you led our forum through just some incredible exercises. I mean, it was a life-changing event for me. And so I can see how, um, and you just demonstrated, you've demonstrated just incredible leadership 
uh, in our program and uh, fostering friendships and relationships with people. But I can see how having you as the CEO and founder of Flock Freight um, with your people, when you're getting up there and you're giving an address and you're talking and you know you're you're a person who wears your emotion on the on your sleeve and that's good, and you're a person who's very empathetic. Um, you connect with people, and I can see how that would be so reassuring for your team, uh, for for your leadership um, teams and so forth to know. It's like, hey, Oren's on our side; he's got our back, and he knows what's going on. He's 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 with us, and so your your group is extremely blessed uh, to have you. You're a, um, a phenomenal leader. It was a, a life changing experience for me when I was able to be a part of Forum with you. So I just want to say thank you here on this on the podcast. Well, I, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. That that means the world to me. Um, I'll, I'll say that um, whether you know, I, I don't think of it as as leadership um, or or group leading as much as just on a human level. Mm-hmm. You know, the willingness to to be transparent, be vulnerable. When I think about your time um, at the program, when I think about my team's time, mm-hmm. uh, in both cases, years, uh, you know, of our lives. Um, it's a it's a tremendous responsibility to to create impact. You know, people sometimes qualify uh, and use the word sense of responsibility. I don't really understand that. I, it's not a sense of it. It's an actual real responsibility. Mm-hmm. So if you think about the team at Flock, all the Flockers, mm-hmm. uh, the people who I've been working with in some cases for years since the very beginning, you know, particularly my my exec team, who you know I'm very close with, the the responsibility that I have. To do everything I possibly can to ensure that that we we maximize a probability for having a great outcome, that ultimately this business works. Not only that, we provide a great return to our investors and a great return to our to our employees, mm-hmm. as as all of them are shareholders. But also that this thing works. Mm-hmm. That we fulfill the mission that we set out and embarked upon. You know, when you think about somebody joining you for let's say ten years of their life and giving you everything they have every day. Mm-hmm. That means that those 10 years didn't go someplace else. Uh, we have the world's most talented team. I, I, I don't think that, I know that. Mm-hmm. And that responsibility that I have to, at the very least, table stakes is work harder than them, mm-hmm. do, do, do more, give more time, more of myself, uh, chew glass, right? Mm-hmm. Never stop, no matter what. You know, 2018, 2019, for this business was excruciating. It was a effective 18 month near death experience. So for those people out there listening, anybody who particularly has thought about, you know, starting something or, or sticking with something that was really hard, 18 months of a near death experience, you know, going to the office at 4.30 in the morning, getting home at 8.30 or nine o'clock at night. And I have children, so you're, you're leaving before they get up and you're getting home after they go to bed. You're asking yourself, am I a good father? Am I a good husband? Am I a good son? Am I a good brother? Um, you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, it, it's, it's scary. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I thought I was a pretty good employee, you know, mm-hmm. doing a good job for my board. I certainly wasn't going to give up on them, but, but if I'm really honest, what, what was really driving me through those tough, toughest possible times wasn't my board of directors. It wasn't my investors. It was my team mm-hmm. that there's no way I was going to let them down. And so everybody has that moment where you feel like you got to just, you know, get up every day and put one foot ahead of the other. And you're not sure what the outcome is going to be. There's no certainty of that outcome. Uh, But, you know, people have invested literally themselves 
It's mm-hmm. one thing if a big institutional investor that has a giant fund of capital that has come from other institutional investors, you know, have decided to to anoint and enable you with a, with a huge sum of money. That's important. It's incredibly important. Mm-hmm. I don't want to seem cavalier about that. Right. It's in my estimation entirely another when somebody says, "I'm going to give you ten years of my life, mm-hmm. and I can't get that back." And maybe in many cases, these are sort of the prime earning years of a life, the prime career building years of a life. That is somewhere between inspiring and haunting, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the the responsibility that comes along with that. So, yeah, you better believe it. You get up in front of the team and you tell them the hard things. You know, you're transparent and you say, this isn't working. We're going to figure it out. I don't know how, but we're going to, I'm going to work my ass off. We're going to make this thing work. Mm -hmm. The flip side is a lot more fun to get up there and say, we're having a good day. We've had a lot of good days of late, you know, and this thing's going really, really well. Uh, But they know that I'll also stand up there and say, we're not having a good day. Mm -hmm. And the hardest thing to do is look those people in the eye and say, and I'm not even sure how to fix it, but I believe in all of you. Mm -hmm. I believe that together we'll figure this thing out. Yeah. Wow. So much right there. I'll I'll tell you that one there's I don't have too many critiques of the Harvard Business School program, but one that you've highlighted here that I would 100% echo would be like I don't think that they have done a very good job of truly baking into those case studies the pain and suffering that goes into entrepreneurship and startups and all of those types of things. It's like, it really is glossed over. It's so academic. And until you're actually in the midst of it, and like you said, you're walking through an 18 month near death experience to give, you know, to take flock from one spot to another spot. And I've been in those same type of situations. It's like, it's, it feels lonely and you're like, oh my goodness. Right. And it's, that, that's an area where I feel like I don't know how they do it, but you, you have got to be able to share, share that pain and suffering a little better than they currently do. You know, I, I agree, and I would argue it would be the closest thing to a truly ubiquitous case. Mm-hmm. You know, these cases are all vehicles by which they teach various principles that mm-hmm. effectively look 360 around the business. Mm-hmm. No one case can do that. You know, there may be a, a fundraising strategy case. There may be a late stage mm-hmm. scaling case, an organizational design case. I mean, these are all just different different components right. uh, of a firm. But the one thing I would argue that is true for everyone that has ever worked mm-hmm. in a firm and or tried to run a firm is that there's pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and how do we deal with that pain and how can we support one another? Uh, I, I, I do believe one thing is, is a universal truth, and I'm not so sure how many universal truths you know, exist, but one I believe is that we all have pain and that if we can support one another mm-hmm. in that pain, we're all better off for it. Not just for the reception of that support, but also for the giving, mm-hmm. you know, you, you also were, were in, in leadership in the program. And, and, I, and I know you well enough to know we both did it for the giving. Mm-hmm. You know, other people received uh, our, our impact or our contribution in, in all sorts of different ways. And uh, that feels great. I mean, it mm-hmm. does. And it's important um, to do that. But also, how much did you and I grow and benefit from just pouring ourselves into it? with no expectation of anything in return, mm-hmm. that that giving is so valuable, uh, knowing that there's nothing but an infinite need out there to receive that support. Mm-hmm. Oh, well said. So well said. For listeners who maybe don't know what it's like to work with the type of institutional investors that you have on uh, your cap table, 
Are you able to share some insights? I mean, we talked to I me, mean, the two big ones that I, that I can see is like when you have Google Ventures, which is their investment arm of Google investing in your company, and then you have SoftBank, which was arguably over maybe the last 10, 15 years, you know, one of the largest, most prolific uh, investment banks, you know, in the world uh, with, you know, sovereign wealth fund from, you know, all over the place. When you have that stature of investor backing you, I'm just curious of what you learned. Uh, how is it different from maybe other ventures that you've been a part of? And, you know, you, you made mention, I was actually chatting with uh, Grant Johnson this morning. We were actually, we were talking about SoftBank and Mashiosi Sun and, you know, specifically WeWork. And with the pressures that they are going through, are, do you feel reverb down onto, into your business where they're just like, oh my gosh, we've got multiple investments that are upside down that have gone bust. Hey, Oren, we're, you know, hey, bud, we're expecting a grand slam like soon. I mean, do, do you feel that type of pressure? They kind of back off and let you do what you need to do. Yeah, you feel it. You know, you're you're in a portfolio, mm -hmm. so you've got sort of sisters and brothers out there uh, that that you're kind of all swimming around in the pool with. Uh, you're not all in the same end of the pool. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's for sure. And some of you feel like there's a lifeguard on duty and some of you don't. Um, you know, I'd also love to call out, you know, um, our other two significant preferred are a firm called GLP and another one, Signal Fire. Mm -hmm. um, and you have to balance, and in our case, we really have four outside directors, um, and then, of course, GV and, and, and SoftBank. And, you know, they they have different sets of circumstances, right? Mm -hmm. They each have a different context. It's entirely possible you've got one investor that's in expansion. Mm-hmm that is marking things up and having great exits. And you have another investor that's doing the opposite. Mm -hmm. They're in contraction, they're marking things down. They're, they're, they're feeling a lot of pain. Um, sometimes the phenomena is a tide, meaning you know everybody's riding the same tide. That's not always the case. Um, and sometimes we're in this unique situation where you know SoftBank's got their hands full right now, but there's also a tide of what we call late stage growth or pre-IPO capital that whole tide is suffering pain right now because there's no IPOs, no IPO exits, then late stage capital doesn't know how to price it and they're, they're, they're worried about deploying that capital. But for instance, Signal Fire was our early seed stage investor, also happened to co-lead our series B, uh, GV uh, led our A. Uh, and so they tend to play in the earlier stages and at the earlier stages that, that tide, the pain of that hasn't yet trickled down, mm -hmm. maybe it won't or it just hasn't yet. And so, the, the incentives, so to speak, can start to feel a little bit stretched, meaning somebody may want you to drive toward an earlier exit. Somebody else may say, no, 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 we love this thing. Keep going. Um, one of the hard parts about you know working on our end of it is you could have a fantastic business, yet somebody wants you to get out. Mm -hmm. you, could have a, you could have a business that's underperforming and somebody may want you to stay. Uh, the, the patience of that capital isn't always related to your performance as an investment. That's a tough one to bend your mind around. Mm -hmm. You know, you'd kind of like to think, hey, if things are going well, then on our side, we should be able to kind of, uh, you know, make that set of choices. Do we mm -hmm. want to go public? Do we want to stay private? We're, if we're profitable, we've got cash flow. Hey, we can, mm -hmm. we can take our time and figure this out. Um, when you take outside capital, you have to be really eyes open. Um, you know, you don't own the business. Occasionally, um, I'm introduced as the owner of Flock, and I'm actually pretty quick, if not sometimes harsh. It's it's reflexive. I don't mean to be rude. I'm like, I don't own it. You know, it'll yeah. it'll I'll just blurt it out. I am the founder. I'm the CEO. I'm a, I'm a large shareholder. 
um, of the firm, but I don't own it. And, and the reason why I call that out is, um, you know, I, I don't have bosses exactly right, but I have a board of directors mm-hmm. um, and they have votes. I mean, they have a voice, don't get me wrong, but they also have a vote and can fundamentally uh, prevent or, or, or create uh, different changes. So yeah, how do you manage that SoftBank specifically? SoftBank, um, you know, is, is a, a very unique animal in they are massive. They've deployed rough numbers, 150 billion with a B dollars since about 2017, 2018. Um, that's, uh, to my knowledge, I don't believe anybody has deployed as much capital as they have in that time frame. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at some of the other largest investors in the world, uh, which are largely uh, pension, um, they they may have pushed out that much or have that much under management, but it's over multiple decades. Mm-hmm. It's not, to my knowledge, in you know a five or six year period. Right. Um, they, you know, they've got some pain as as you as you mentioned. So they 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 kind of go risk off. Um, what makes SoftBank really so unique, more than my other investors and most other investors, is that uh, Masayoshi, you know, affectionately we known as Masta, um, really controls that firm. You mm-hmm. know, so uh, there are lots of incredible executives there, lots of incredibly powerful, influential people who work within Ma- uh, SoftBank. It's, it's a huge firm, but you know, this is publicly known. You know, Masta owns about a third of SoftBank, um, and so. You know, Masa can do a deal or can decide not to do a deal mm-hmm. within his own power. As a, as a founder, all founders uh, meet Masa. It is part of the process. Um, you meet many, many other people, but you will meet Masa at least once. We've done two rounds with SoftBank, so I've met Masa twice. It's a very formal uh, experience. It is largely ceremonial, but it matters. Mm-hmm. Masa kills deals. Mm-hmm. And and he just does at, at at his own discretion, which is not to say without potted care. Mm-hmm. The guy's you know arguably one of the most experienced investors in the world. Um, and at the end of the day, if he wants to do a deal, it gets done. And mm-hmm. and if he doesn't, it doesn't. That's very different. A typical venture firm, private equity firm, growth firm, um, hedge fund you know, sovereign, all these other entities that are institutional, meaning it's not just like a billionaire who reaches into their wallet and says, here's a million bucks, but assuming it's some type of institutional investor, they have kind of committees, they have partnerships and partnerships decide to do or not do deals. Um, I don't know if that's better or worse, Mm -hmm. uh, but it's different. And so if the majority of the capital that's been deployed, the majority of the, of, of the, of the voting, you know, voters, I should say, mm-hmm. um, on the flock board are truly that, that institutional, we call it sort of GPLP in structure, then they kind of seem to behave more a certain way. And then if you have a kind of single decision maker, ultimately, uh, they may behave similarly or differently. I think for me, the biggest challenge that I would communicate that, that could be eye-opening is, People will ask, you know, do do you trust your board? Do you trust your investors? And I would say, look, I absolutely do not distrust any of them. Like, I have no decided I do not trust you investors. I, unfortunately, some people experience that. I do not. I've got fan. I, I'm not I'm not just saying this because it's you and me being recorded. I'm telling you, you know, we have benefited from fantastic capital partners. I mean, in 2018, 2019, if they were going to do shenanigans, if they wanted me out, they would have done it then. The numbers were garbage. We were struggling, near-death experience. We talked about it earlier. Um, the business is doing incredibly well now. Uh, we have 
very aligned um, investors. You know, that being said, um, we're all adults, we're all professionals. So uh, I think the way that, that I would encourage people to think about it, this is how I think about it, is what are their incentives? What are ours? And do I understand alignment? And if so, how long will they be aligned? Mm -hmm. So, you know, they have investors of their own. They have to provide returns to their investors. It isn't just as gross as they want to get rich per se, although I don't begrudge anybody wanting to make a lot of money. Rather, they everyone has a customer. Everyone has a boss. That's just the way that works. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they have a set of incentives that says, this has been a great ride, Warren or Flock. It's fantastic. And we'd love to exit that ride mm -hmm. because it's been very good to us. I may say, well, I don't feel ready. That doesn't make me wrong and them right or vice versa. It just means that we now have a different point of view. Maybe we're not as aligned as we were. Um, you know, it could be a, a newer investor who's come in and said, wow, you smashed it. We got a quick two or three X in a year. Well, we're out. We wrote a huge check. You tripled our money in a year. We thought you'd triple it in 10. So, you know, net present value of mm -hmm. cash, like yep. I'd be just, just fine if mm -hmm. you exited. And I would say, well, I'm not ready. Um, you know, that doesn't mean anyone's a good or bad person. The the inverse is true, but less likely. And that's me going to the board and saying, hey, we have an offer to exit. It's very good or it's good or whatever. And I'd like to do it and get out. That's a little bit different situation for them because then they have to decide if their founder and CEO doesn't want to do this anymore. Then what is they'd have to replace me, right? Mm -hmm. Because if I'm signaling I, I'm out, yeah. um, then you probably don't want to let me or keep me in. Right. You know, that, that would be problematic right. versus because I'm the operator. You know, I'm the yep. CEO who goes to work every day. If an investor says they want out and I force them to stay in or the board forces them to stay mm -hmm. in, it's a little different. You know, right. we're not counting on them to show up to work every day for, you know, 70 hours grinding um, inside the firm. You know, that being said, um, and if this is helpful to, again, any of your audience, yeah. I think there's uh, I don't think it's pure luck that we've got a board that's very aligned um, with our management team. I think it's because to your previous point, you, know, you mentioned um, you know, that I wear my emotions on my sleeve and, and I do, you're right. I, I also wear my values on mm -hmm. my sleeve. Mm -hmm. I'm, I've grown uh, comfortable, maybe confident in my, in my old age, um, allowing people to understand who I am and understand my values. So well said, so well said. Yeah, and comfortable with the self-selection that comes along with that, right? There are some people that will select out and mm -hmm. say, hey, you're not for me. Uh, and that's okay. Like that just has to be not only okay, that has to be fantastic. Uh, and there are other people that will select in and say, boy, I really feel resonant. With you. Mm -hmm. we're, we are on the same frequency. Mm -hmm. This is fantastic. I want to partner with you. I think that I was doing that through all fundraising rounds where I was comfortable and confident enough to be myself and allow them to see who I am and make a decision knowing the majority of prospective investors said, no, thank you. We wish you the best of luck. Mm -hmm. You know, we've raised a lot of money. We're very highly valued. The vast majority of the pitches I went on ended in some form of no or not yet. That, that is how this works. But the yeses, uh, we're deeply aligned. And so it's not surprising that um, we are on the same page. They, they have communicated and continue to express a lot of trust and support in, in me and the flock management team. And, and that's because uh, we're doing what we said we would do. Mm -hmm. And to their credit, uh, they invested eyes wide open. You know, they, they understood who and what we were and they, they liked it. It worked for them. It fit, it fit their scheme. In the midst of all this, Oren, like all the, the pivots, 
the challenges, the obstacles to growing a company, the working with outside investors, working with the board, building a company, taking a look at where the opportunity is, extremely busy. You're, you're, you're asking yourself, am I a good husband? Am I a good father? Am I a good son? Am I a good brother? Um, you also found time to massively invest in executive education and continuing education. And I'd like to understand your thought process behind that, because it could have been very easy for you to say, you know what? I don't have time for this. I, I barely have time to breathe. I need, I need to, why it was, that was a cost. I mean, arguably the co the expense was cheap compared to the co the time cost, which is way more valuable for you. And uh, you found a way to make it work. And that, you know, it's a, a, a decade basically that you and I, you know, worked together uh, in our program. So w why did you do that? Yeah, look, um, I think I went into it. Uh, it's kind of why I started versus why I stayed. Mm -hmm. um, I think I went into it because it sounded good. You know, it's, it's, you know, Harvard Business School, what a tremendous institution. I mean, truly an institution. Um, you know, knowing the faculty would be unbelievable, knowing I would be incredible people. Um, and, and honestly thinking I wanted to learn, I wanted to, to be educated. I think like a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of founders, uh, there were things I intuited relatively mm -hmm. well, you know, how many times have you said, why don't you just understand this thing that I seem to just understand? Um, the problem was as a, as a leader, as a manager, as a CEO, I was very frustrated that I couldn't necessarily articulate and knowledge transfer. Mm -hmm. Uh, the things that were in my belly, because they were in my belly, they weren't in my brain. Mm -hmm. They were sort of just things I understood. Who knows? You grew up around it. I saw, I call myself a slumdog billionaire. You know, I've just seen so many awful things that you have pattern recognition. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the moment you're presented with something new, you kind of compute. And you're like, oh, I've seen that over here. It's different, but there's enough pattern recognition. I feel like I can now navigate, you know, mm -hmm. the, the next step here. And, and so, you know, I wanted to be educated. I, I also think that you know, I pursued um, in my selection of university, my, my life passion at the time, which was playing uh, indoor volleyball. And so that drove all of my, my academic choices, which ultimately weren't necessarily to be the best student uh, as opposed to, to be the, the greatest athlete, you know, mm -hmm. to compete and win championships. Right, wrong. That was absolutely, you know, the, the teenage uh, mindset that I had. Now, certainly those things are different and I wanted to be the best business person I could, the best leader. So I go to HBS because I want to, I want to educate myself and I want to, I want to effectively and efficiently be able to knowledge transfer to those people that I'm working with. That's why I go. Mm -hmm. Why do I stay? I loved it. I loved every bit of it. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to actually give you maybe, I don't think this is going to surprise you necessarily, but, but probably surprise a listener. Um, I loved it because I felt safe, which is kind of a strange answer. But what I mean by that is, um, you know, I was uh, a good student as a kid. Uh, being a good student as a kid isn't necessarily a great way to make friends, isn't necessarily a great way to be cool. So instead, I got bullied. I got picked on. You know, I was I was ostracized for being a good student because when you're eight, nine, 10, 12 years old, good student isn't necessarily what you what most kids aspire to mm -hmm. or at least in the schools I was going to kind of, you know, I was, I was a kid in the system, you know, right. and, um, and I didn't, most had worse experiences than me. I don't, I don't want to overstate this, but I would just say that I didn't necessarily feel like I was in a safe environment. Mm -hmm. The, the environment of academia 
And in this program was one that was totally different. If you were good at school, that was actually cool. Mm -hmm. Um, And the experience I had of feeling good at it, of enjoying it, of, of, again, wearing it on my sleeve, not just my emotions, but my values, uh, my, my curiosity and feeling, um, you know, safe in that expression, mm-hmm. um, you know, via the, the people, right. The cohort that, mm-hmm. that we were fortunate to be a part of, that's really why I kept doing it. So every year I was there and I thought, okay, I'm learning a ton. There's no doubt about it. I mean, literally X's and O's learning. Um, I did acquire the tools to knowledge transfer from my head, not just my belly. Mm-hmm. So now I, I feel fortunate. It isn't just me saying, don't you know this thing that I just know? I mean, that's absurd, right? Now I'm able to, and I know you do it too. We draw two by two, you know, <laughs> on everything. Up <laughs> up on, the, uh, on everything's a two by two, you know. Uh, and if it were at MIT, it'd be a three by three, right? But at HBS, it's two by two. So, um, you know, I, I, I was, I think, successful in acquiring knowledge that my brain can then use to transfer to, to teammates. And I'm super thankful for that. Um, moreover, uh, for me, the experience of, of feeling like I was part of a cohort mm-hmm. whereby I could be really transparent, be really vulnerable, allow this thing that I enjoy to actually really love school. I enjoy learning. Um, that is really exceptional. I would say for anybody, if you've got a chance to present yourself to an environment, to a group of individuals where you can truly let them see you, mm-hmm. truly let them see you and you feel safe, mm-hmm. and, uh, it will give you energy. So every year I went there, the company was out of money. I was fundraising, out of time, working hellacious hours. You know, you get a 15-minute break, 20-minute break between classes, grab a coffee, make a bunch of phone calls, put out some fires, go Hope back to Hope the company class. is still there, <laughs> right? Yeah. Hope the company's yeah. still there. You know, you have to almost do like a one-minute meditation and just yeah. try to clear my head. So I'm like yeah. back here, present in the room. Mm-hmm. We go back to our groups. We do our evening, you know, prep for the next day and, mm-hmm. and all, all the aspects of the program. It was um, – it was a safe harbor for mm-hmm. me. It was um, a place of learning, but not just um, academic learning, but kind of very soulful mm-hmm. um, a means of expressing myself. Um, and I realized in the end, and, and I, this is helpful for anybody, you got to ask yourself if you're giving energy to something or if something's giving energy to you, mm-hmm. is this depleting your tank or filling your tank up? And little did I realize that I would show up to campus with a nearly empty tank and that program would, would fill it up and it would overflow. Mm-hmm. And I mean, yes, my head, you'd go back to the office with a hundred ideas that you're going to try and implement and X's and O's for mm-hmm. sure. I, I was, I was guilty of that. Mm-hmm. But more than that, my, my heart too, my gut felt full and I felt re-energized, ready to chew more glass mm-hmm. uh, every year for the program. Yeah. Let me tell you how great you were. As a uh, a peer that sat in the classroom with you, and there was, you know, we had two sections, section A, section B, 180, 190 uh, CEOs from around the world that were going through the program with us. And the, um, it, you know, you, it's a large classroom when you break it down into two sections. And the, 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 the dreaded cold call. Right. And you'd come in prepared for with those cases. You've done all the reading and then you've got everybody sitting in this, you know, theater style classroom and the professor like, all right, here's the case. Here's what's going on. And they just they scan the room and they're looking for somebody. And they're like, all right, 
give us a summary of what's going on, what's happening. What do you think? Did they do it right? Did they do it wrong? Where would you go? And I mean, you're on the spot in front of a large group of people who are very smart. And it's a, it can, can be a, a contentious debate and dialogue at times. And one of the things, like so many people did not want to be that first person getting called on. And some people would shy away from ever wanting to be called on. You, I was just impressed at, at there were, um, I can't think of anybody else in the program that willingly stepped into the fray like you did on a consistent basis. You loved raising your hand and being like, hey, I got an idea. And you would go back and forth with the professor. I saw you get, you know, uh, I wouldn't say argumentative, but there were times that you were you, you, you were debating, like, no, I disagree with your point of view here. And here's what, and, and you brought so much experience and uh, knowledge to those discussions. I found it, uh, it was very informative. You were one of the guys. Uh, in the program that when you raised your hand and had something to say, everybody stopped, listened, and took notes. There were other people who did not have that command, um, but I, you you were a phenomenal um, resource in there because you just you brought such you know great expertise and wisdom to the the dialogues that we were having. Um, and then I you know I highlighted on the, the tail end of it in forum right. So forum is a closed door. Um, you know, seven, eight, nine people together kind of doing life and talking about life and, you know, all the various things that we're going through. And you, there were, you had such a way with people to be able to get people to be authentic and transparent and to open up. Um, so, yeah, you, you, were, uh, you were awesome, man. Well, thank you. I, I, I can't tell you how much that means to me. Thank you very, very much. Um, you know, as I was sharing before, the, the safe space mm -hmm. uh, to do that, to, to have a point of view, a provocative point of view. Um, and I, I think you're being kind. I probably was a little combative at times, and that's not always the best part of me. I'm, I'm working on it. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're not all good. We're not all bad. Right. You know, so I'm, I'm trying to get better. But having that point of view and saying, you know, um, you know it's reasonably well thought out. I'm going to reasonably be able to articulate this point of view, but have a point of view nonetheless. And to be is a bit of a, if anybody's ever been in a case method program or thought about it, but be sincere to the context of the case. Mm -hmm. I think that was something I really tried to do. Remember we did a case on, um, on, uh, it wasn't actually Netflix. It was a production company called MRC and it had to do with, um, house of uh, cards. What was the uh, house of cards? Yeah. And, you know, uh, MRC was producing, you know, this, this big show and, and, you know, do you take it to Netflix or do you take it to HBO? Mm-hmm. It's kind of the context. And I, I recall everyone in the class kind of saying, oh, well, of course, you know, you go to Netflix. Netflix is amazing. And it's like, ah, let's be fair. Circa the time of the case, Netflix was still DVDs, mm -hmm. you know, being mailed to you. It was early in the streaming game. You know, HBO was Sopranos. Yeah. You know, that was a much more obvious. And so MRC made a major strategic bet on uh, on Netflix, ultimately, you know, maybe right. on Reed Hastings, you know, yeah. that like mm -hmm. this is going to be the future of where we're going to take our, our asset. And, I, and I, I really love the opportunity to and I suppose I still do it. Pretend I'm the protagonist in the case yeah. um, and try to see it through their eyes with the information that they had at the time um, and kind of game theory that thing out, because I think at the end of the day, that's what people do to us right. as leaders, as CEOs. Mm -hmm. They're constantly, you know, rightfully so, maybe our board sometimes second-guessing us. Are we making the right or wrong choices? Hey, look, with the benefit of hindsight, you're always going to be right. Yeah. But put yourself in our shoes right now in the moment. You know, we've got mm -hmm. this incredibly volatile world right now. 
We've got investors on their way up, investors, you know, suffering a lot of pain. We've got all kinds of ambiguity. We've got sort of this post-COVID world meets, you know, inflation, fuel. We've got mortgages at 7% for the first time and you know, I don't know how long. Um, you know, it, there's a lot of volatility mm -hmm. out there and you and I are going to work every day and we're making a set of choices. The mm -hmm. only difference between us doing that and anybody else doing that is our choices have consequences for a lot of people. Yeah. A lot of folks. And I, I, I like to think, believe it or not, of, of the, the choices I make in our business through the lens of like a case. Mm -hmm. Um, just because I, I like thinking through how I might read or reflect back on this moment in the future. And first and foremost, um, because I'm going to be working hard no matter what, and I'm going to be chewing glass. I want to look back and feel proud of the team. Mm -hmm. I want to look back and say, we acted with integrity. We took the harder path because we believed it was the right thing to do. We were transparent. Um, we communicated with people. We, we did the hard things, um, but we had a convicted point of view. Um, I, you know, I think that's, that was kind of the joy that maybe I was channeling in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And, and it, it, was, it was really the, the uh, highlight of my life. I love you the way you approach the cases and you kind of see yourself as the uh, protagonist in there. I, I do the exact same thing. The, um, you know, looking in the rear view mirror or hindsight, you know, there's an abundance of clarity. Everything is obvious, right? But it's when you're in the midst of that challenge and you're looking into the future and you're trying to decipher, okay, well, do I turn right? Do I turn left? What do I do? I mean, you're in the midst of the fog of war and it is bullets are flying and it, you're making a gut call at times with limited information um, in the middle of a battle. And you're just, you have to, you're, you're trying to do the best that you can. And so uh, I, I do the same thing. I put my, I try to put myself in that seat of the protagonist, you know, w what were they seeing? What were they going through? You know, how should you navigate? I guess it brings us to a, you know, a good point today. I mean, um, you know, you and I are looking in the rear view mirror right now and everything that we should have done or could have done or um, over the last two or three years is really clear for us. Right. We see we see all the in the rearview mirror. We see the clarity of, um, you know, what, what good decisions were, what bad decisions were. But where we sit right now, looking into the future, I mean, we sit in the as you just said a second ago, we sit in the midst of a very tumultuous time, both economically, uh, socially here with the United States, politically. Um, what would you do you think it's possible for society at large to foster some of the same types of dialogues that we had at HBS where, you know, people with very different points of view at times. Uh, it's one of the things I loved about the program is that you, there's, it's an amalgamation of people from uh, all across the world, different religions, different beliefs, um, vastly different points of view on, you know, sometimes contentious issues, but you're able to sit around a table and you're able to have a conversation and you're able to dialogue and you're able to find out where do we have commonality and uh, where are we different? Uh, let me, I want to see the world through your eyes, through your point of view. Uh, I found that to be so enriching, uh, enriching. And it feels like, you know, as I talk with members of our program, it's like, how come we can't have similar type dialogue in society at large right now? Is it even possible? Yeah, look, uh, it's the right question to ask. Um, I think, I, I can't speak for you, but for me, uh, first and foremost, I think I try to understand the context mm -hmm. um, of, of the moment. You know, Rowie would talk a lot about context, right? right. And, and the context is ever-changing. Uh, it's not static. Whether we want it to be or not, it just, it just isn't. 
So some of this is, you know, I'm not worried about food and shelter. You know, I'm for the most part not worried about physical safety. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I'm worried about, you know, building a great business, not letting people down, returning capital. And, and again, top of my list is making sure that the time people have invested in me and not elsewhere mm-hmm. is ultimately really, really successful. That is a preponderance of my context. You know, I worry about my 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 wife. I worry about my kids. You know, I worry about my family. I worry about my friends. Um, but you know, I'm not in Ukraine right now fighting a war. Mm-hmm. So context is the brutally hard part. I, I I guess that the only thing I could say that maybe is helpful on this is I I really I'd like to believe um, if everybody was just thoughtful about other people's context, mm-hmm. it's pretty easy to understand your own. Uh, well, look, let me let me start at the very beginning. Please, let's all be conscious. Mm-hmm. Like, let's just be conscious of, you know, like, be thoughtful. Like, mm-hmm. you're asking uh, maybe the question um, on the planet Earth right now. Um, you know, thank you for doing so because all your listeners are going to be thinking on this question. So, number one is let's be conscious and ask this question. You know, number two is let's be thoughtful about our context. That's pretty easy. Let's be thoughtful about the other person's context. So, it's, it's almost like a, hey, why do you ask? Mm-hmm. You know, like, tell me about you. Tell me about what's yours. You know, um, at, at the program, you know, we were there during the Arab Spring. And what a what a fascinating time, interesting time in the world where we had a lot of, you know, Muslims from the Middle East in the program. And, and we had a lot of Jews from from Israel, from from North America um, and and happened to be in this program because we were there for academia. We were there for uh, improvement or betterment. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet it became this really interesting Petri dish. You know, facilitated by Professor Rawi Abdullah, who's a global macroeconomic expert, um, who, you know, brought people into a room and said, we can do this in the most difficult kind of circumstances. We can get around and, and we can talk and we can share. And, you know, we'd all agreed that that the, the content, everything we discussed in there would stay in that room. But what we saw were were adults having adult conversations from very different contexts uh, with limited to no judgment about right or wrong and rather just trying to to be heard, mm-hmm. to express themselves, to share their fear, to share their their pain, mm-hmm. the things that they think about. Um, you know, I've got to believe it starts there. I really, really believe this. I mean, and I don't think I'm being naive. I really, really believe that like 99.9% of the humans on the planet Earth want the same thing. They want an opportunity to raise their families in relative peace. Mm-hmm. They just want a chance, not even to be entitled. They mm-hmm. just, just give me a chance to work mm-hmm. hard. And live in safety and have my family grow up with a chance to live in peace and safety Mm -hmm. um, and work hard. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, sure, we can all think of one or two people that defy that notion. Great. Prove me wrong. But that doesn't mean I'm wrong. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think the vast, vast majority of humans on the planet Earth want the same thing. So, you know, there's all sorts of tactics about separating you know, uh, the people who are making decisions from the people whom those decisions are being made for, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, the, the very few who, who make these choices on behalf of the many. Um, but I think the reality is, uh, you know, you and I have benefited from a context that's allowed us to be really you know, conscious and thoughtful about that context. But I, I would argue that while that choice maybe was a little bit easier for us to get to because maybe we had slightly less like underlying stress, mm-hmm. sort of food and shelter, like base level Maslow. Um, I do think that anybody, um, you know, could, could could consider that to be a choice that they want to make and, and be thoughtful about context. But, you know, I also want to be fair to 
you know, I'm sitting in a beautiful office in Chicago, having come from my beautiful office mm-hmm. in Encinitas, San Diego. And, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, living in a, a safe environment with economic prosperity. I mean, yeah, the world got hard and, you know, interest rates are up, but, you know, we're still in a pretty great spot compared mm-hmm. to the, you know, the many billions of people on the planet who aren't. Um, I've got to think fundamentally if we're, if we're considering the other person's point of view, mm-hmm. um, that, that something good comes of that. That's great insight. I think though helping people move up Maslow's hierarchy of needs is so important, right? Because as you, as you articulated, we're at, you know, the top in terms of self-actualization where we've got safety, security, um, income to be able to sit, maybe sit down, have conversations where if you're on the bottom rung of that ladder and you're like fighting for survival, you're, you you do not know where your next meal is going to come from. Um, all of a sudden your, your viewpoint on the world and what matters to you um, and how you're reacting to what's happening is very, very different. You're not able to have the same type of maybe conversation just because of the, the, the stress, stressors that are on you. It was very, very insightful for you to be able to kind of pick that out. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. So uh, with all the things that we've talked about, since you're at the um, this, this very critical you know, intersection of the U.S. economy. Are you able to give any kind of predictions or insights in terms of, you know, where you see things going? I mean, it could be anything from, you know, inflation or uh, the economy over the next six months or so. I mean, you said earlier that you feel like we're going to probably get back to maybe some sort of normal uh, normality uh, in the second quarter of 23. Um but I mean, even like the technology, you, you're hearing autonomous uh, vehicles. We're seeing so many people trying to get into the autonomous vehicles for trucking and how that's going to disrupt the entire uh, trucking and logistics infrastructures. Is, is there anything that you've got your finger on the pulse there that maybe uh, the average American may not have read or understood where you can you know, shine the light on it a little bit? Yeah, we we have relationships with all the major players on the autonomous vehicle side, and we like to stay informed. That being said, um, you know we don't work in those firms. Those are you know their intellectual property is of mm-hmm. course uh, very very valuable. Um, that being said, I think we'll see tranched approaches to the deployment of, of what we call AV autonomous vehicles. Um, you know you'll see that that middle mile first, which is sort of a tractor trailer rolling down the highway, maybe. Um, Platooning, which means you know they may have two, three, four trailers kind of tethered to one another, um, and it'll sort of be you know crossing the, the United States in a straight line with with a robot. Mm-hmm. Initially, of course, there'll be safety drivers in those trucks. I think there will be for a very, very long time. Uh, once there's enough data to suggest that they're as safe and, and and ideally safer than a human, because let's remember, human-driven vehicles are not necessarily safe. So really need a frame of reference. The goal is zero, unfortunately. The goal is just can it be as good or better than mm-hmm. uh, the alternative? As humans, we make mistakes. Um, and that will be that middle mile on the highway. The first and last mile are brutally hard, mm-hmm. brutally hard. First and last mile is just imagine all of your listeners pulling out of your driveway, pulling out of your garage if you're fortunate enough to have one. Mm-hmm. Coming out of your driveway, pulling out of your parking spot at your apartment, navigating a parking lot, navigating kind of your your residential neighborhood at low speeds, stop signs and kids on bikes and balls rolling around the street, and just all the all the reality of the universe. 
um, and then making your way through an arterial, you know, system that ultimately gets you onto that highway and then doing the same, that's the first mile, and then ultimately doing the same thing on the last. But now the difference is you're not doing it in a, in a Toyota or a Honda. You're doing it in a potentially 70-foot-long, 80,000-pound tractor-trailer. Um, you know, the, the, the stakes are high. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's, you know, the stakes are very, very high. If we think about the development um, you know, uh, you know, in San Diego, there's a big story about the, the Osprey, you know, the tilt rotor, um, that was, is, is now fully deployed and, you know, that, that it's going to save a lot of, you know, us lives and its ability to insert and extract troops very quickly from dangerous situations. I think in the long run, I'm, sh- I- I'm confident that'll be the case. The problem is in the short run in development, a lot of people died. Mm-hmm. It's an incredibly complex machine. Um, and you know, there, there were problems developing an incredibly complex machine Mm -hmm. and Marines died in the development of that technology. Um, you know, a hundred years from now, we may look back and say, you know, worth it. If I don't want to, you know, sit in balance of, you know, lives and there weren't, uh, we may say that many more lives were saved than lost. And maybe that's the math equation. Mm-hmm. Uh, that may end up being the math equation on, on autonomous vehicles. Mm-hmm. Again, we do have to remember that, unfortunately, car accidents happen every day. People mm-hmm. are dying driving cars. If we can put autonomous capability on board, that will be safer less people die, that's a very good thing. Yeah. There is a flip side to this, and that's the, the economic side, of course, because these are these are this is this conversation at least is less about you and I's ability to get to and from work or wherever mm-hmm. in an autonomous vehicle, and more about commercial goods, the, the, right. the supply chain uh, being automated. Uh, there's something like you know two plus million, two and a half million truck drivers in this country. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people are someday going to lose their jobs. Yeah. And we have to grapple with that. How do we repurpose the the most common counter uh, industry to truck driving, meaning the, the ebb and flow of that talent pool mm-hmm. is construction. So you have a lot of folks working in construction, and then they may go into driving a truck for some period of, of like boom years, and then they may go back into construction. And so you see a lot of mobility between okay. those two those two workforces. I wasn't aware of that. For all sorts of reasons. Yeah, it, those are the two kind of balanced uh, workforces. So, you know, if, if, you know, two and a half million jobs are lost in truck driving, I'm not so sure the construction industry can just immediately absorb, you know, right. two and a half million workers. Yet these are very hardworking men and women. They, 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 it's, I, this is the furthest thing in the world from lazy and entitled. The mm-hmm. furthest thing. Right. I mean, this is you go out for eight weeks at a time away mm-hmm. from family. Uh, you sit in, in hellacious traffic. You wait four, six, eight hours to get unloaded at a fulfillment center. I mean, this is really a difficult job to, at the end of the day, be underpaid. So, you know, what what will that uh, uh, look like? Where will those jobs go? Um, you know, some of them will go back into construction, but a lot of them won't. Mm-hmm. That's something this country is going to have to reconcile. Um, you know, I don't have the answer for it, but what I do tell you is we can see this coming. It's like a seasonal business. I mean, the downside of seasonal business is it's seasonal. The upside mm-hmm. is that it's seasonal. You know, I can see holiday season. I know my business is going to boom mm-hmm. in the holidays. So after holiday is over, I need to have a plan. Um, that being said, I think we're 
well over a decade out. Mm-hmm. I think that there are tremendous safety concerns that the, the federal government has to deal with the Department of Transportation because these trucks are crossing state lines. Mm-hmm. So this is going to be not only a state issue, but it's absolutely going to be a federal issue. Uh, to the degree that it's a state or federal issue means it'll become a political issue. And there's going to be a, a patchwork of regulation, mm-hmm. uh, you can imagine, um, as, it, as it's going to apply to this. Uh, there'll be some protectionist policy. There'll be some some open, you know, in some cases, maybe none, you know, where we're going to have to see how it all unfolds. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a real thing. And then um, economically, you know, uh, we're, they're, they're, we're going to have to see how well this actually scales. You know, these trucks are not going to be inexpensive. Um, and it's unlikely we'll be in the next couple of decades retrofitting the existing fleet. So what happens when all these new trucks are being produced that are autonomous? You know, all these old trucks, their guys are going to crash. Mm-hmm. I mean, imagine that all of a sudden somebody figures out how to build a home that's like, you know, for a fraction of the cost of your home on uh, in a better location or something. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, your property value crashes. There's a major uh, ripple that goes through this. I, even though I, I, I'm excited about it, I think it, it will improve the supply chain and make it faster and more durable. It also kind of scares the crap out of me, and I don't see myself in a hurry to see it unfold. Not, not betting against them. I just think there's some really big questions that aren't necessarily being asked and answered yet. But, but good news, the news, without judgment, I think we're still well over a decade away until this is commercially viable. The interesting thing that you you bring up there is this creative destruction that's happening just in your industry where you've got close to what you said, 2.5 million great paying jobs for hardworking Americans. And that's just in this industry. I think that the creative destruction is happening across the board on so many different, in so many different industries where there is job destruction. I think that you're going to see a continued pressures on the middle class I think that you're going to see people who are having to retrain and be like, well, this used to be an area where you know, I was able to have work and sustain my family. And now I'm going to have to, it's almost like um, career migration or career immigrants, if you will, going into different, uh, different locales, different, um, different training. And it, it, the other thing that strikes me, I wish we had more time to talk about it, but early on you were talking about, I, I could hear it in your voice. Your background, you grew up, you understood the trucking industry because of um, when you got started, you had a connection with the people in the industry and everything that you're doing is to not only serve your customers better, but you're also providing a better service for uh, the truck drivers and the the freight industry, right? And these are these are your friends. These are your family. You understand them. And you've mentioned them throughout the course of this this interview. And it's it's readily apparent that you're passionate about helping them and making the world a better place. I, I, I find a connection to that because my story, my origin story is with where I'm at and what I'm doing currently is very much tied to me growing up in Flint, Michigan and seeing the ebbs and flows of the automotive industry. My entire family was blue collar workers at Ford or General Motors and watching factories get um, moved overseas, Canada, Mexico, people losing their jobs, hardworking Americans that were just like, uh, what do I do now? And, you know, those days where my grandfather could graduate from high school and go and move into a nice uh, paying job in the factory without a college degree and earn a great living for his entire career. I mean, that was not available for me, basically, when I was uh, growing up. And so I just it's it's interesting to see that your your connection to the people and um, 
what you're doing is you know trying to make life better for them at the same time you know do great by your investors uh, do great by uh, creating a, a company that is removing a carbon footprint um, you know be certified and um, uh, so my hat's off to you well thank you thank you yeah look we eat because the men and women who drive trucks mm-hmm. Um, and I've, you know, my first job in college was a forklift driver working at the port of San Pedro in Long Beach and loading and unloading uh, these trucks all day. And, you know, of, of course they're real human beings and they want the same thing we all do to mm-hmm. raise their families mm-hmm. in relative peace and prosperity. Mm-hmm. I mean, we all want the same thing. Yeah. Their backgrounds are different. They, they maybe communicate differently, whatever, but we all want the same thing. Um, this is a, a cohort. This is a persona that is undervalued. That is largely unappreciated. I mean, you know, my, my family during, you know, I guess two of 2020, hard COVID, as I as I affectionately refer to it, you mm-hmm. know, we were largely, you know, uh, sheltering in place, right? Remember all these languages yeah. that we have that we've already forgotten. Yeah. And, you know, my family, it was wonderful. My wife and kids made, uh, uh, you know, we, we love our first responders. We love our medical professionals. They made some signs, they put them out. And I thought, that's amazing. I need you to make one more of them. Mm-hmm. And they're like, what do you mean? I go, we love our truck drivers. Mm-hmm. And they were like, oh, yeah. And I go, no, this is a real thing. Mm-hmm. You know, like we eat, we take this for granted that mm-hmm. we have supermarkets and we mm-hmm. go to the store and there's all this lovely food on the shelf, you know? And then all of a sudden we started realizing, holy cow, you know, there's a lot less food on the mm-hmm. shelf. This is like problematic. What's going on? You know, well, this is what's going on. The world got really hard. Uh, these people uh, took real risks mm-hmm. um, with their own, you know, lives, you know, present sort of feelings of COVID aside, it was pretty damn scary back mm-hmm. in Q2 of 2020, a lot of uncertainty mm-hmm. about what we were dealing with. And those truck drivers were, were delivering our goods, meaning coming into contact mm-hmm. with people, making pickup and deliveries. It's not just sitting alone in a truck all day yeah. uh, and they don't make enough money and they're not, they're not sufficiently valued. So I'll, I'll, I'll sum it up in this and say, of course we have an obligation to uh, provide these men and women with higher earning or income earning opportunity mm-hmm. and at the same time reduce uh, carbon that's yeah. being produced and at the same time make it easier for customers to get access to high quality low cost mm-hmm. supplier surplus it's hard to hit those three wedges yeah. and do so in a way that's financially sustainable and profitable and people tell me like oh that sounds hard oh okay yeah. I, I don't know how to respond to that like, let's do yep. it let's do it it's hard you know, like, let's not have conversations about, I don't want to do something because it's hard. Let's have conversations over, can it be done? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, let's have conversations over, should we do this? Meaning, you know, is this the right or wrong thing to do? I think those are the right conversations. But, you know, people need to push themselves. You know, I'll bring it right back to that classroom I was in a week ago with undergraduate students. I said, you know, you're going to one of the best universities in, in the state and therefore one of the best universities in the country. You have an obligation to, to do well by doing good. You know, you've been anointed. People are expecting you to go out there and do hard things. Don't take the easy path. Don't just chase money. And I'll say something maybe a little bit controversial. Also, don't just necessarily go the not-for-profit route. There, there are routes where you can do both. Mm-hmm. Because the, the benefit of, of being for-profit is that we're economically sustainable. We're not mm-hmm. living on donations. We're not living on tax dollars. We're, we're able to produce a profit mm-hmm. to keep this company going forever. And at the same time... Uh, deflate the cost of shipping goods, increase compensation to the men and women driving trucks out there, um, and reduce carbon. Uh, carbon. 
you know, yeah, all of that's hard. Okay. You know, but that's just our version of doing well by doing good. There's a nearly infinite number of other versions out there that I would want people to challenge themselves to explore. What books are you reading? You're, 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 you're a continued uh, education junkie. You're a continued lifelong learner. I know that you, you and I have traded stories over the years of all the various books that we like, but what's, what's motivating and inspiring you right now? I mean, just listening to you talk, um, you're, you've got to keep that flame alive, and you've got to keep, you've got to keep vision in front of you. Uh, you've got to be, keep motivated. Um, you're, you're building a complex company, arguably so much more complex than an Airbnb or Uber. You know, how are you doing it? What, what, what books are feeding you and motivating you to, to keep you going? Yeah, I'm literally reading right now Morning on Horseback, which is a uh, Teddy Roosevelt uh, oh, wow. biography. Um, and just prior to that, if you can believe it, I read uh, War and Peace, Tolstoy, for the first time uh, earlier this year. That's a, that's a beast of a book. Um, I'm continually gravitating unconsciously or subconsciously, but now I'm kind of understanding it, to historical biographies of significance, people who took on hard things and did hard things. Um, you know, it's not a not not a legacy thing or anything like that. I'm trying to understand what pushed them, what inspired them to continue to do these hard things, and and continuing to try to understand the context of the time. Uh, just before that, I read um, uh, George Washington biography by Chernow, and then uh, Alexander Hamilton's biography mm -hmm. also by Ron Chernow. Um, so it's been mostly um, historical biographies of mm -hmm. like giant people. Uh, and wanting again to better understand what drives them, but but I'll tell you, yes, it's it's filling up my head for sure. Um, it's also um, immersive. I, I feel like it also sort of fills up my my gut and my heart. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this idea of uh, look, people are not all good, all bad. I know I said that before, so I, I don't. I'm not. You know, um, deluding myself into believing that these people were perfect or saints. Mm -hmm. What they were, though, are people who worked on really big things with a lot of purpose mm -hmm. behind what they did. Mm. Most of them were more reluctant than people realize, you know, they didn't necessarily want that um, notoriety or want that attention, but they felt called. They felt compelled into service in all sorts of ways. I mean, war and pieces, you know, the, the French invading Russia, right. Mm -hmm. You know, so the Russians did not ask for that. Although the timing of reading war and peace when Russia invades Ukraine mm -hmm. was ironic. Yeah. I started the book before the war, uh, <laughs> but you know, I was committed. So yeah. I kept reading. Um, you know, and, uh, and understanding, you know, what people fight for in some cases, literally war and peace in some cases, figuratively, I mean, Alexander Hamilton was fighting everything all the time. I mean, he was fighting in the revolutionary war and then he was fighting that book more than anything else was really resonant for me. Um, I just, you know, again, an imperfect person, if, if you know the story of Alexander yeah, Hamilton, right. um, and utterly remarkable, utterly, I mean, got more done. Mm -hmm. um, in 50 years of his life than any of us could accomplish in 500. And, mm -hmm. and by the way, you, you mentioned hard upbringing in Flint, Michigan came from impossibly hard circumstances in the Caribbean, yeah. impossibly hard, lost his family, lost everything, you know, came, came to the U S uh, basically effectively on a scholarship as a, as a kid. Um, I really have been filling up my tank on, big stories mm -hmm. of big people doing hard things. Maybe on some level, it makes me feel like what I'm doing isn't that hard. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's a little bit of a yeah. relief in knowing that, that, you know, yeah, okay, I'm working on something hard, but th these people worked on really hard things. Um, and then also, you know, inspiring me to think about the future. You know, uh, how, what other hard things might I uh, get myself involved in?
Man, well, you're inspiring me. I'm, I, you, you've given me a couple of books that I'm going to put on my list. I love Ron Chernow, by the way. Uh, and yeah, what, what an incredible author. Um, I guess final question. You've been so gracious with your time today. I've learned a lot. I always enjoy connecting with you. And I know the uh, listeners are going to really enjoy all these uh, words of wisdom from you. And I'm sure a lot of people are going to go out and learn a little more about uh, your company and uh, the great things that you're doing. We'll be watching you in the marketplace and uh, be cheering you on with your success. But imagine that you had the ability to give a State of the Union address to the American people. So you're getting up. You're, you've got the microphone. The whole nation is watching. You know what's going on. We've been, we've done, we've gone through, you know, the COVID challenge. Then we've gone we, economic challenge. You've got middle class America. It's been, you just people have been struggling. We've got social issues. We've got, you know, uncertainty, war in Ukraine. Um, you know, there's just a, a, it seems like the last couple of years there's just been a lot of things that people have been navigating, right? And um, you've got the microphone. You're talking to the American people. Orrin, what are you going to tell them? You know, it's probably the uh, native Californian in me, but I I think I would start with just asking everybody to breathe. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe just say, hey, please join me uh, for one minute in just breathing. Uh, Close your eyes. If anybody's ever done any form of meditation, you know, I've always learned, like, have your feet rooted into the ground. Mm -hmm. I mean, ideally, you know, take your shoes off, stick them in the dirt, Mm -hmm. you know, feel connected to the ancient uh, nature of the earth. Mm -hmm. Uh, feel big and feel small, you know, at the same time, but maybe most importantly, feel connected. Mm -hmm. We are all humans of the same species on this planet. We all fundamentally want the same thing, an opportunity to raise our families in in peace and an opportunity at prosperity. Um, I think that I would, um, you know, asking people to just breathe, um, I would and I know this is obvious, but uh, I, I would just reject anything divisive or any rhetoric, you know, anything that's insincere. I think it's okay to do a State of the Union, get up there and say, I don't have all the answers. Mm-hmm. You know, it's certainly what I say to my team. But what I tell my team is what I would tell this nation. We've got the, the, the smartest, most committed people on the planet Earth here. Um, how can this not work out well? Mm-hmm. I don't have to know every twist and turn. I don't have to control and optimize for every dimension. We're going to optimize for one or two things. We're going to care deeply. We, you know, we talk a lot about being all in mm-hmm. uh, at Flock and and being all in as Americans, and realize that that this thing's a mission. It's bigger than all of us. Uh, you know, there's a mission driven uh, country. I believe in a lot of ways. Maybe we forget that at times, um, but really, just you know. Extend one another just a little bit more grace. Extend one another just a little bit more power. That very same experience, which is, you know, how can we afford one another grace? If we can do that with a team this talented, everything is literally possible. I love it. I love you ending on the aspect of grace, extending grace to one another. Everybody makes a mistake. Everybody has a bad day. Just, you know. If if everybody was looking for a way to extend grace to their neighbor, the world would be a different place. Different place. Absolutely. So well said, Orn. Thank you so much for your time today. You're you're a great friend. You're an incredible entrepreneur. Great CEO. Looking forward to seeing all the things that you do with uh, with Flock and uh, your incredible group of um, business leaders and associates over there. What do you call them? You call you don't call them the herd. What's the 
We're the flockers. The flockers. I love it. I love it. All right. Meet the, Meet the flockers. I was just about ready to say that. Meet the flockers. That's fantastic. But we'll keep our eyes out for you. Love Please you. Do. Thanks so much, Bob. Thanks for having me today. Utterly fantastic to see you. Thank you for your leadership. Uh, thank you for your shoulder, for your strength. Um, you know, you've you've met the world for me, and you know, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. So thank you. Oh, well, that's what friends are for, my friend. All right. You have a wonderful afternoon. Thanks, Bob. Well, thanks to our guest, Oren, for taking the time to be with us. Make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or wherever you go to listen to your favorite podcasts. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back next week with more.